This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. <clears throat> well, good morning, everyone. And welcome, especially to those of you who are joining us for the first time this morning. Um, so today I wanted to do a mando, a question and answer session, instead of um, a usual uh, talk. And I've been uh, working my way through a teaching called the Eight Awarenesses of Enlightened Beings. And it is um, said to be the Buddha's last teaching according to the Mahayana Mahaparinirvana Sutra, which, which records you know, the last um, few days, I believe, of his life, and then this, this particular teaching. And so I wanted to speak today about the fifth awareness, which is not forgetting right thought. And, and this is what the Buddha said. If you friends seek both a good teacher and good protection and support, Nothing is better than not forgetting right thought. For those who do not forget right thought, the thieving multitude of deluding passions cannot break in. For this reason, you should always keep right thought in your mind and regulate it well. For if you lose this thought, all sorts of merits and virtues will be lost. If the power of this thought is strong and firm, then even though you mingle with the thieving five desires, you will not be injured. Just as if you go into battle dressed in armor, you will not fear the enemy. This is the meaning of not forgetting right thought. Now, right thought is the second factor in the Noble Eightfold Path, and it's called Samyak Samkalpa. And uh, traditionally, the Buddha spoke of it as renunciation from um, the thought of renunciation, sorry, of freedom from ill ill will, and of harmlessness. But Master Dogen, 13th century Zen master, who who commented on all these awarenesses, also said that not forgetting right thought is protecting the Dharma and not losing it. And so I'm going to throw a few questions, you know, your your way. And first I'm just, let let me... do a little bit of a of an introduction and then and then we'll open this up but so how do you lose what was never gained to begin with how can someone take from you what is not given how do you forget a thought that is actually not really a thought because it's not a thought that arises or that passes away and perhaps more pointedly how what does it mean to you to protect the dharma and not lose it. Yesterday, I spoke of, of uh, the sixth awareness, um, uh, practicing samadhi, and the Buddha spoke of it as um, guarding the levee, you know, where, where you have this rushing flow of water, and you're basically guarding it. You're collecting the flow. You are not controlling it, but you are... Um, you're in mastery of it, and you're letting it be um, contained and, and um, harmonious, so it's not all over the place. 
And so here he says something, something similar. He says, the thieving multitude of deluding passions cannot break in if you are not forgetting right thought. He says, even though you mingle with the thieving five desires, you will not be injured. And the five sense desires, um, sight and smell and um, touch, hearing, etc., they are in Buddhism, they have been referred to as thieves, that what they steal, what they take from us is our awareness. They take our equanimity. They may even take our aspiration to awaken, right? If we understand, um, as the Buddha pointed out himself, that the root of our suffering is desire, is craving, is moving towards what we like, moving away from what we don't like. And then, and if the only way that we can really experience the world is through the senses, then how do we prevent them from stealing our awareness, from stealing that desire? to wake up, to remain present. And so the Buddha speaks of right thought as a kind of armor. But what is that armor? What is it made of? Can you actually, can you put it on? Can you take it off? What is that armor? And then Maizumi Roshi, um, who did a commentary on on these awarenesses, says also that to not forget uh, right thought is to maintain and protect the three treasures that that is not forgetting right thought. Now, the three treasures, as you may know, are Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And there's three different perspectives, three ways to look at these three treasures. In terms of the unified three treasures, the manifested three treasures, and the abiding or maintained three treasures. So the Buddha treasure is a historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, the person, the man who awakened and through whose, whose teachings we find ourselves here today. And that is really the manifestation. That is a manifestation of the Buddha treasure. The Buddha treasure is also Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, Supreme Enlightenment. That is the unified three treasures, which actually come into, you could say, is one treasure. The three become one. And, and this uh, one treasure cannot be defiled, cannot be stolen, cannot be taken from you, from anyone, because there's nothing outside of it. So from the perspective of the unified three, three treasures, you actually cannot harm the Dharma, take the Dharma. And this is our nature. This is our nature. Buddha is also the realization of that nature. And it is also the infinite manifestation of Buddha's presence through all of space and time. So that's another manifestation. And then the abiding or maintain three treasures includes all the, all the statues, all the icons, all the images, representations of the Buddha and all the Buddhas that now continue and maintain the tradition to this day. The Dharma treasures undefiled purity. And the reason it's undefiled is, as I said, because it reaches everywhere. There's nothing outside to stain it. You cannot offend it. You cannot harm it. It embraces everything. It accepts everything. The Dharma is also the teachings that have been handed down generation after generation. That's the, the, the manifested uh, three tra- uh, Dharma treasure. And it is the countless sutras, the commentaries, the oral teachings. That's how it is abiding. That is how it is maintained. 
all the words that give expression to a truth that actually cannot be expressed fundamentally. All the words that, that express, that make visible the invisible truth that the Buddha realized. It is the wisdom of all of those who have walked a path before us and who have said, this is what it means to be human. This is what you can expect of your body, of your mind. This is how to navigate a human life. The Sangha treasure is also its oneness within multiplicity. Right now, this is a Sangha. And clearly, we are different. We are also one. Sangha is a community of practitioners. And it takes work to maintain harmony within community. But that is what Sangha does. So Sangha is not just a group of like-minded people. It's not even an intentional group of people. It is, in fact, the virtue of harmony. So Sangha is harmony manifested. And we speak of it often as a, as a jewel that in the beginning is rough. And together we help to polish uh, each other until that jewel is more and more brilliant. Sangha is the abode of the Buddha and the Dharma. It is the practice of the Buddha's Dharma. It is how we embody the Buddha's teachings in our lives. And so this awareness is really pointing to the fact that we, each of us, are the three treasures. And the work, the practice, is to live our lives in accord with this truth. And I've, and I've often said, you know, that sitting zazen, as powerful, as critical, perhaps, as it is, is not enough. It's not enough to sit quietly. It's not enough to be mindful. It's not enough to concentrate. It's not enough unless that is actually realized in your life. And so we hear, again, Master Dogen would often say, you have to practice, you have to realize, you have to actualize. You practice again, and you realize, and you actualize. And I really feel that most of a practitioner's life is not realizing that absolute, it's that in that silence and that stillness. It is actually making that function in your life. And so very simply, how do you understand Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha? How do you understand taking refuge? And even if you just walk through the, through the door this morning, perhaps you're not interested in the three treasures. But this is a core teaching, not just of, of Zen, but of Buddhism. And if we, if we believe that what the Buddha taught has actually some relevance to our lives now, then how could this be relevant to your life? He also said that the power of right thought, if, if the power of right thought is strong and it's firm, then nothing can injure you. How? How do you maintain the thought of the Dharma strong? How do you remember in the midst of forgetting? Which we do all the time. How do you get injured to begin with? What's injuring you? Who is injuring you? So let me stop here, and, and we'll open for questions. If you would like to ask a question, if there's something you'd like to say, 
raise your hand. Somebody will pass you a mic. Wait until you have the mic in your hand. Hold it close to, to you so that um, it's actually recording so that people who will later be listening to this can benefit also from, from your questions. Jogan, uh, Denise is. Do they have to turn them on? Well, in the meantime, maybe Denise, can you can you try? Oh, it's not on either. <clears throat> There you go. Hello? Yeah. Okay. So everything you said resonates completely with um, where I am right now, Um, just this pondering of the Buddha, the Sangha, and the Dharma, and and its relevance in my life. Um, And I, I think, like, I would have problems articulating how I'm trying to bring it into my life, but when you were speaking, um, I remembered about two days ago there was a... um, I think she was like a near homeless woman who came up to me and her breath smelled like liquor. Um, and I, I just spent a month at the monastery. So I was like very, very open and I gave her some money and I'm just like looking at her and she's like, no, give me more, give me more money. Um, she's like, feed me, feed me. And, and I could see that she was intoxicated. Um, but I'm looking at her, um, not like in a loving way, but I was like very present with her. And I was like, you know, this woman is the Buddha. You know, she's a very, um, um, in a way she's like a, a harmed Buddha or she's like a tainted Buddha, but this woman is like the Buddha. And I'm just looking at her, I'm like, I know I can't, I can't do anything else to help you. Like I can, like that's the Bodhisattva vow, but I was like, I really can't. So I was just like, with her and very present and just like staring at her and like like everything that she said I was trying to take trying to take in but it was like how I didn't quite know how to practice in that moment the Buddha the Dharma the Sangha knowing that she in a way is the Buddha the Dharma and the Sangha she's this manifestation in this way that's been so um harmed by modern society you know um so I was just with her and, and then I'm like I'm I'm sorry it's like I can't give you anymore um, and then she finally realized, but it was like long, it was like five minutes. She finally realized, oh, you're not going to give me anymore. I was like, I'm sorry, I'm not. And then she left. Um, but it's like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't know, um, there was no confusion of right action, but it was just kind of like this sad thing of like, I can't cross this boundary knowing that you are you are everything, um, but there still need to, need it to be sort of like a space. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, well, so that's a very good example because I'm sure, I am certain, that um, a number of you, if not all of you, experience this sort of thing all the time. So how do you respond in that moment? You may think about it in terms of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha or not. How do you respond? What would you say to Denise? <coughs> Oh, 
Oh, come on. I know you deal with this. <laughs> I just flew back, back there. Or... Um, I think that in that moment you did your best. And maybe you had to sit down with yourself and, and review it maybe. But when you do your best... There is nothing else that you can do. And for did, me, you, did you say that in that moment she did her best? Oh, from my point of view, yes. Yeah. Um, but she, she had to do that question to herself. And mm-hmm. um, that, for my, for my way of thinking, if you do your best, there is anything else you can do in that moment. Do it through your experience, circumstances, and the way you are in that, at that moment. Yeah, remember that as practitioners, um, you know, we chant every day. We chant the four bodhisattva vows. We will chant them in, in a little bit. And one of those vows is to save all beings. Right? But that saving is not what we think it is often. You know, so there is such a thing as being with someone fully and seeing them as the Buddha, seeing their perfection and not being able to save them in the conventional sense. You can't take her away from her life, right? And so, so we just have to be careful, you know, when you hear some of these terms. It's not idealistic. It's not uh, romantic. It's very real. Especially, again, you know, you're all here in the city where you're encountering humanity every day. It's not that I don't encounter it, you know, up at the monastery, but it's a, it's a retreat, you could say. And so people come, people choose to come to the monastery, and so it's very different. You're here, you're in the midst of it all the time. And so in one sense, it's easy to take refuge when things are going well, and when it's easy and things are aligned, and you're, you're surrounded by people that want to help you to practice. How do you take refuge in a situation where the person that you have in front of you has no idea about practice, doesn't care about practice, in that moment, how do you, in fact, meet them? Um, John or um, Irene? And maybe in the meantime, somebody can give John the mic, and um, then just we'll go back to Ben. To build on that, um, I think you also meet them in the way that you vote and the way that you participate in your community. Mm-hmm. How do you allocate resources? Are there... Uh, you know, are, are you allocating resources for social workers, for therapists, for, um, to, you know, alleviate income inequality for, against gentrification, um, against racism? Like, how are you participating in alleviating the conditions that helped put this woman in this situation and in which, you know, your own pain is also bound up? I mean, how, how are you, both bound up in that same situation, um, and how are you not, how, you know, acknowledging what kind of privilege I might have that this woman doesn't have, or how do I alleviate that? Mm-hmm. So it's not just the one-on-one; it's the collective and how I'm participating in that. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. John, are you gonna? Yeah, I was gonna say that there's. Um, for me, I, it's trying to close that gap between that moment when you want to turn away mm-hmm. and turning towards. Um, I, I, you know, we can't, I don't think any of us here are in a position to help 
to the extent the person needs that help, each of the people who we encounter. But I, when you have that first, I don't want to say repulsion, but that first instinct to turn away, to not want to see this, mm-hmm. to just meet them as a person, you know, which, which the, we all sit on the subway and watch everyone turn away or look at their phone or uh, basically anything to not encounter this person. You know, and that's what they experience most of the time. So, I mean, I know for me, sometimes it's just wishing them luck or looking at them and saying, you know, who this person was, you know, who this person is beyond the circumstances <coughs> I'm seeing in front of me. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing circumstances, but be, beyond that, there's a person there, you know, and that got there somehow. And I can't, I'm not going to be able to figure that out or get there, but to, that person is still going to see me if I if I if I spend a moment. I mean, there are times on the subway or whatever I'll just wish them a good day and look at and they, people don't talk to them all the time. You know, it, it's just like you know, here's something. Please keep going. Yeah, and that turning towards is is critical. It's critical, and it's an integral part of taking refuge. I was saying to the people who did the the zazenkai, they all they sit yesterday. You know, Daidoroshi. Um, used to describe taking refuge. The, the Japanese, kie, means to unreservedly throw oneself into. And he would used to give the example of his son standing on the top of the, the dresser and leaping into the air, throwing himself into Daido Roshi's arms, knowing, knowing, trusting that Daido would be there to catch him. And I've told this story before, but we used to have a dog that did that. He was a, a, a dachshund. Uh, his name was Igor. And he would stand in my mother's, uh, the edge of my mother's bed. And I'm not even sure how we even discover this, uh, that he would do exactly that. He would just leap into space. It's like four paws and the, the ears are like, you know, floating like this. <coughs> knowing, I think, you know, knowing that we would catch him. Or it was just that he had a very little brain. <laughs> but that, he was really just the, the manifestation of that trust. And that a child does that, you know, so, so easily. And we lose that. Or it, or it gets beaten, you know, out of us as, as we grow older. And yet, taking refuge from a Buddhist perspective, you could say it's almost the opposite of protection. It is completely opening yourself up. It is completely acknowledging the utter fragility of a human life, the utter vulnerability. And because we're so vulnerable, we can only do it together. It's because of that vulnerability that we turn to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, that we turn to the person, the situation, the moment that we want to turn away from so desperately. And it is in that turning that something happens, at least the very least, there's a possibility for something that two seconds ago was not possible. Right? So that, that turning towards this is critical. Do you still have that question, Ben? Uh-huh. Okay. Um, okay. I'm sorry. I just wanted to say that, uh, Denise, I thought that was really lovely what you said. And I really like um, how Thich Nhat Hanh does the Bodhisattva vows. He says, meet everyone with loving kindness and compassion. And that's very understandable for me. And, you know, what a lot of people said is just 
being open and meeting someone. I mean, um, for my art project, I, I did a community project where, um, I don't know, it, it just taught me a lot about loving kindness and compassion of just meeting people where they are and just, yeah, doing the best I can because also people can be like hungry ghosts too. I mean, I think you could have kept giving her dollars and maybe that's not the best thing. I mean, we don't know, but the fact that she was open and able to, you know, bring her wall down and, you know, be loving, kind and and compassionate to her. It wasn't even about the dollars. And so sometimes when people ask me for money on the street, sometimes, you know, I will acknowledge them. I'll smile as a human being and and then sometimes, you know, if, if I feel like someone's really needy or it really, you know, moves my heart, I'll give them a dollar. And, and most times I'm really appreciative of the fact that you did meet them with loving kindness and compassion. You brought that wall down because most people do ignore them. So, yeah, I think it's just, you know, just being open to whatever the situation is and whatever the skillful means are at the time, I think. Yeah. You know, and if you're able to, to not only bring the wall down but walk in far enough until you realize, until the point where you see, well, there's no them. There's no them and me. There's no them and us. There are me. That woman is me. You know. And so from that perspective, it's not even that it becomes easier to help or to respond. I think it just becomes harder not to. It becomes harder to turn away. Uh, this is a different question. This okay. is a question about right thought and the Dharma. Yes. I don't really understand what you said because one one definition of the Dharma that I hear is all phenomena. Yes. And so I don't understand how it can be discerned right from wrong. And I don't when I try to do that in my mind, I start judging this thought, that thought. And uh so I guess I'm looking for like a skillful mean to 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 a way to to uh respond in those in those moments as I'm thinking. And also just like to zoom out how a, how a non-dual, for lack of a better word, concept or... That's a pretty good word. Okay, thanks. I heard someone else say it. So. <laughs> and uh, how that, how within that, like what both how and like why and what's the use and why bother creating or even acknowledging the surface level manifestations that are different and, and the quality of those differences. As it comes to, as like, as it relates to thoughts, particularly, did that make any sense? The last part. I was no, I'm not sure about the last okay. part. Okay, I was doing well, and then I kind of. Um, well, yeah. hold, can you hold that last part for a second? Sure. Maybe we can come yeah, back yeah, to yeah, it because yeah, yeah. your question points to the question that I was going to ask you. I, w- I wanted to come back to why. Why does Dogen say that taking refuge, that not forgetting right thought, is protecting the Dharma and not losing it? If Dharma is enough, is, is in fact what you're saying, is phenomena. If the Dharma is truth, it is, it is the reality of things as they are. How could you lose it? How could you lose it? Why would you need to protect it? Fubai and then for you. I've got to be me. I've got to be me. And how is that protecting? <clears throat> it feels like it's protecting. Mm, you can do it better than that. It's, it's habitual. It's protecting this thing that I've grown used to protecting. Um, 
that's my challenge with staying with, with right thought is because I think that in that striving, it's many times been putting a moral judgment on the response that I've had and feeling like, oh no, I need to be something else, which seems like that's also a false view on that side. And to accept that while not wanting to be more than who I am, also not being less than who I am, and that means that there are going to be responses that are not, that that are going to are going to feel right in the moment, and then there's as soon as they come out, that that moment of of going, oh that that wasn't the most skillful means at the Is time. Is that relating to kind of what you were asking, Ben? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so if you if we think of another way to think of right thought. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not myself. Right? So, so the Buddha said that, um, <coughs> this is me, or I am this, is conceit. This is myself expresses a view, but not necessarily the right view, because there's a self at the center. This is mine is an expression of craving, is an expression of desire. And so, in a moment, you could say, <coughs> in a moment when we forget, in a moment when we forget right thought, when we forget the Dharma, when we lose it, this is, I am not, I am not this, this is not mine, this is not myself, is one way to remember. But it doesn't quite yet get to why does this need to be protected to begin with? If the Dharma is, is perfect, is pure and undefiled, it is all encompassing, there's no place where it doesn't reach, why does it need protection? This, because this is Dogen who's saying this. I don't think he's saying that lightly. And there's much that we do in our practice and in our liturgy that it, you could say is, in fact, uh, an attempt to protect the Dharma. So, so why? Um, um, thoughts are also, they're, they're actions in the sense that hey, they have consequences. They um, create karma. So... Um, so in order not to cause harm or to cause the least amount of harm, you would have to pay attention to your thoughts and not feed thoughts that cause harm or can lead to harm. Or, or can lead to harm. And I think um, whenever harm is done, um, it, it started in, as a thought in somebody's mind. I mean, that's where it had its origin. Exactly. And, and it and it grew from there into an action that became harmful. And so we all have to be aware of our, our thoughts and, and not feed ones that will lead to harm. Right. If we could act, if we could live out from, from that understanding, if we could be perfectly in accord with things as they are, so let's even take the word dharma out, and we're able to just really see things as they are, we would be in harmony. There would be no conflict. That is not how we live our lives, right? Most of the time. And so we either, we don't see, or we do have thoughts of ill will. Um, What did he say? That it was thoughts of ill will, of um, 
we, do, we don't have thoughts of renunciation. We have thoughts of craving. We have thoughts of ill will. And we have thoughts of doing harm. So in that moment, in that moment where a thought arises in our minds of, I don't like you, or even further, I want to harm you in some way, in that moment, we've lost the Dharma. The Dharma itself can be lost. It hasn't gone anywhere. We are no longer in contact with it. And there, therefore, there is, you could say, finding your way back to it, remembering to practice. There's a teacher who said the most difficult thing about practice is remembering to do it. Remember that, that those of you who just received beginning instruction this morning, and perhaps this seems like you know a good idea for you, perhaps not. The most difficult thing that you will find as you go back to your, your lives is remembering, oh, right, I learned this. Do I sit or not? It's in a, in a, in a moment of you know, eating in, in a rush, standing up or you know, doing other things. Oh, right, I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to, I want to, I want to be present. That's the most important, most difficult thing is actually to remember. And so that was one of my questions, right? How do you remember in the midst of forgetting? What sorts of things do you do in your lives in order to remind yourself Right, I want to practice. I want to be awake. You had your hand before. Do you still? Then can somebody, Jogan, can you give me the mic? Um, when we were speaking about right thought and that instance of someone on the train, um, I guess I'm, I have a question about how karma relates to this mm-hmm. um, and how karma in terms of thinking um, Functions. I, I've been reading uh, *Mind of Clover* by Robert Aiken, and in that situation, when you're on the train and you have nothing to offer in terms of money or food, and I guess I'm, I'm coming from a Christian background, but like offering a prayer or thinking like a right thought, mm-hmm. is that something that is that the right action, the right? thought to, to be in in that situation. Um. I mean, in one sense, nobody can tell you what the right action is. But is it skillful to offer that as opposed to not offer it? Yes, absolutely. Mind has enormous power. And the Buddha said that there's three ways in which we create karma, through body, through our actions, through our speech, our words, and our thoughts. So if you have nothing to offer except your gaze to actually meet the person, as a couple of people said, and then to wish in your mind, may they be free of suffering and know the root of suffering. May they be filled with happiness and know the root of happiness. Just even those first two of the four immeasurables. That is creating karma in that moment. Is it going to fix the person's life and make everything okay? No. But it is creating karma. It is creating karma of goodwill. It's creating karma of loving kindness, of compassion. I do that now in the subway when I come. I do that in the subway all the time. I just I stand there as so I'm getting to going to Port Authority, and I and I do the four immeasurables for anybody in the in the car. You know, I figure it won't hurt. So, <laughs> so yes, yes, and never ever underestimate the power of mind. We we use about this much of our minds. Just probably a good thing, because I don't think we're ready <laughs> to use more of it. But never underestimate the power of the human mind. Busan. Maybe can we exchange mics? 
the bottom, maybe. Um, sometimes the language of, of right thought, um, especially when I first came here and beginning instruction descri- describes um, seeing the thought, letting it go, um, that I heard that as a sort of um, uh, in- encouragement, basically, that you shouldn't be thinking. Uh-huh. And I've I've sort of in childhood always appreciated like the uh, imaginative mind and the creative mind and have appreciated thinking. And when I heard that, I think for a while I experienced it as like, like you're, you're being bad mm-hmm. when you're thinking. Mm-hmm. And, um, that, and I suffered because of that. Um, and, um, when I hear the language of like put on the armor mm-hmm. of right thought, it's like it sounds so. It doesn't sound like I feel like there's something. I'm not hearing it uh, as it should be heard, but I don't. I, it sounds constrictive, mm-hmm. and um, there can be because the language of right thought can sound like this, like enlightened way of thinking like you become this like perfect being who just only thinks when necessary but that's like not interesting at all (laughs) and so it's not very free yeah yeah Yeah. and so um i just wanted to bring that up i don't have a specific question no it's a it's an excellent point um and people will often say that is you know i'm really trying to not think good luck (laughs) <laughs> you're not going to get very far. There are moments, there are moments, sure, in which the mind uh, becomes still enough that thoughts disappear. There, there is such a state. Um, but that's not what you're trying to do. You know, a, a big part of what you're doing, especially at the beginning of practice, is you're concentrating. You're, you're cultivating samadhi, single-pointedness of mind. So remember, your practice is to be every thought of your mind, every cell in your body, every bit of you on the breath, direct experience, physical experience of the breath, unmediated experience of the breath, right? I mean, have you noticed how much we're explaining to ourselves what we're experiencing? You know, Annie Dillard spoke of this, you know, different ways of seeing. There's a way in which you see directly, and you're one with the thing that you're seeing. But she's like, normally it's like we're in a baseball game with a, with a commentary in the back, I am having this really nice fish and chips. Oh, this is really good. Well, I'm going to take a picture of it and send it to my friends because then everyone will be able to know I'm having this really good fish and chips as you're having this really good fish and chips, you know? And this is, we do this constantly, constantly. It's like we've decided to put a, a curtain between us and reality. And so what what the instruction of Zazen is doing is is, is helping you, is training you to quiet down enough that you can actually just experience. You can experience the breath. Right now it's deep and it's even. Right now it's, you know, very superficial. I feel, I feel anxious. I can't get past two. I'm really trying and I can't concentrate. And you're seeing that. That is telling you something about you and your state of mind in that moment. So it's not right, and I think that's also what you were saying, but it's not right thought in the sense of right and wrong thought. Right here is in the sense of 
skillful in the sense of the paramitas. It is based on wisdom. It is based on what will um, be affirming instead of hindering me. Right? So if you know that you're distracted, that is a form of right thought. I am aware. I'm distracted. If you know that your mind is calm, you know, you, right, that is, that is calm. So, so it's really important not to use zazen to suppress anything. Your, your feelings, especially your feelings, your thoughts, especially those thoughts that you don't like, that you don't want to have, that you didn't know you have. You know, people start sitting and after a while, you know, memories start to come up. Images start to come up. They didn't even know we're there. Now they, they have room. And you don't want to use zazen to push them back aside so you can just concentrate. Right? So you need to be able to take all of reality, all of your experience into account. And then what you're saying in terms of the, the imagery, you know, I think Shantideva uses a lot of the similar, similar imagery. Like you're a warrior, you know, going into battle sometimes with your mind. I think partly what he's doing, what they're doing, is um, pointing to the fact of how difficult it is to tame the mind and how compelling the sense desires are. So you can think of armor as, again, kind of shutting yourself off from everything, which is frankly not very compelling and not very freeing. Or you can think of it as a kind of protection. You know, there's a lot of liturgy. There's mantras that are mantras of protection. And, you know, I have a couple that I use, either that I've learned, you know, from Buddhism or that I've made up, essentially, that I've created. You could say it's a kind of protection to protect my mind in those moments where I want to lash out. Somebody said something and I'm angry and I don't want to lash out. There's something that I say to myself which creates kind of a kind of armor. I'm saying, if I can't do good in this moment, at the very least, I won't do harm, right? Or when somebody hurts me, you know, and, and so it's even before the moment of, of lashing out, there's a way in which you can create a sort of protection in which it lands but doesn't penetrate. So I, I read it more in that sense, that... And as I said, you know, as I, one of my questions was, what is the armor made of? Can you actually even take it off, put it down, put it on, you know, at certain times? It's not armor in the way that we think, usually, of armor. Um, yes. Hi. So um, I'm interested in what you were just saying about um, sometimes when you're angry and you have things that you do, um, and and yet earlier you were talking about how when you're when you're in that state of mind, you're not in contact with the Dharma. The Dharma is still out there, but it's not with you. And that really speaks to me because I have um, recently had some uh, times when I've been profoundly angry with people, sometimes with groups of people, sometimes with a particular person usually over entirely petty things, I have to say. So um, not being a good person at that time. And yet it's not, uh, it's not really possible, I think, to just say, okay, I'm not, just not going to not be angry. Right. I'm angry. Right. And um, so I mean, you can think about, well, why am I angry? Or what can I do about this anger? Where is this anger coming from? And 
is it uh, well founded in any sense at all? It may or may not be, um, but it seems wrong to me to just sort of push it away. That would just be denial, right? Which is you know, and it might be that you're just going to be angry for a little while, right? And but that's not very satisfactory either because you could just get stuck there. And so, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts well, or advice about on that? Where in the process you catch it, right? So if you're able to catch it before, you know, as it's the, the, you're entering into a, a relationship of some sort and the other person says something and you begin to feel it, in that moment, if you're able to catch it, that is what concentration and mindfulness in this case especially help to do. If you're able to see it arising, you may be able to, you could say, apply an antidote. That would be a situation in which I... I, I I would use in, in uh, the way that I have done. The, the Buddha called it as you're you're re, you're forgetting um, in an unskillful thought, and you're replacing it with a skillful one. So I might, in a situation, as I'm facing the person, in my mind, say, "May you be filled with happiness and know the root of happiness." As I'm feeling just the beginning of that anger arising. If you're not able to catch it then, and you're already in the full blown anger, you you're 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 permeated with that poison, but you're still aware that you are, then that would be, if I can do good in this moment, then just refrain. At the very least, just keep your mouth shut. Don't do anything. Don't say anything in order to not escalate, in order to not continue that karma. You just basically stop. Remove yourself if you can. If you can't, you say the thing, and there you go, there you are again. Okay, there's always the next moment. Can you atone? Can you take responsibility for that anger? Can you apologize to the person? If you can't do it immediately, can you return and come back? Can you once again shift the direction of the karma that you started, that you created? And of course, you're not doing this alone. The other person is, is in relationship with you too, so it doesn't absolve them of responsibility. But you can't control their, their mind. You can only deal with yours. And so, so, and that's an important distinction to make. It's not that everything you must practice and the other person has nothing to do with it. Of course, people do and say hurtful things, behave in ways that are, that are not good or skillful. So it doesn't mean that everything you're supposed to deal with on your own. But it's that, that the way that we respond to situations is, to a great extent, and more and more, the clearer you are, is in fact in our in our purview. It's our choice, and so it's choosing to do what is skillful instead of what is harmful. Do you know what I mean? I, I do, and um, but I, I think I disagree about what you said. Now, just a little bit with what you said about not being able to control their mind, because um, the the things that you actually do or say, unlike all those emails I've written that I've then discarded. Um, but if you actually send them or say them or whatever, then you're going to have an effect on that other person. Yes. They're gonna, and it's going to come back to you. Correct. That's karma. Correct. And uh, so you can't control their mind, but you can affect their mind. Correct. And by doing so, you can affect the situation a little bit. Um, and, and then the anger can subside at least. Right. But so what I meant is not is not that you can't that you're not going to affect them. Of course you are. What I meant is you, you can't make the person practice their anger. 
If they don't want to, they won't. You can change their anger. You can change it, and I think that's what you're pointing to, by how you respond to it, by not affecting them in a, in a further negative way. But once it's, 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 it's gone, it's left your being, if you will, and now it's, it's in their court, that's what I mean. You can't change how they will deal with it and respond to it. You, you know the distinction that I'm, that I'm making? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that is why, in a, in a sense, you're the only one who can put on the armor. You can't put it on for someone else. You can certainly choose to throw the arrow or the bullet, but you can't make them put, on the, make them put on an armor or not. And so in any situation, it's also discerning what is mine and what is the other person's. We are one, and that's why our karma is, is, is so, so um, interconnected. But at the same time, there, is, there, there are my actions, and then there are your actions. That is a place where we can't save the other person either. There is choosing my actions in the most, uh, again, affirming and loving way, but I can't save you in, in the sense of choosing your actions for you. I can never do that. Yeah, oh, go ahead, Alex. Um, so just going back to the thought of, you know, pr- protecting the Dharma, mm-hmm. um, I remember the, the first talk I ever heard Shugen give in person. He, he was talking about how, um, how the Dharma was, was everywhere, and even if the universe ends and if all people and if all life everywhere ends, the Dharma would still go on and still exist. So, you know, it can't really be hurt. And so I was just kind of wondering, is, you know, protecting the Dharma kind of the phrase? Because, you know, there's really no way to protect this thing that can't be harmed. Um, Is it more of like a symbolic gesture? Like, be willing to put yourself on the line for this dharma? Um, it is willing, being willing to put yourself on the line for this dharma, but it's not a symbolic gesture. So, so although it is true that the dharma will outlive us, will outlive the universe itself, Again, we are, we are bringing it into being through our actions. And, and you know, animals and plants, um, animals, let's say, especially act, but they don't, they don't um, as far as we can tell, actually, the, I, I shouldn't say that um, with, with certainty, but as, as far as we can tell, are not intending to harm each other. They're, they're trying to survive. Right? The human mind has both the incredible capacity to, self, to be self-aware but therefore also to choose to act with harm or not. And so in that, because the, the Dharma doesn't live, doesn't manifest except through things, the world, beings, and in this case, us. And so although this undefiled, perfect purity, beginningless and endless, could never be harmed, as we bring it into being, we can absolutely harm it through our words and through our speech, you know, and through our through our thoughts, you know. So, so it, if if I moving through my life choose to steal and lie and misuse sexuality, as we 
uh, phrase our precepts and elevate myself and put down others, through those actions, I would not be protecting the Dharma. I would be setting myself in conflict with that inherent perfection. I still have it. I'm still perfect in, in my beingness. I haven't lost that. But I've lost the ability, perhaps the willingness, to actually act out of it. And therefore, and we experience this, we're in conflict. Right? We, we experience whether it's anger or whether it's um, unease, whether it's anxiety, whether it's fear. All these, these emotions, especially negative emotions, what they're telling us is there's, some, there's a gap. There's something not lining up. So rather than look at them from a, from a point of view of, of judging it, I'm a bad person, what if we just take it as, what is happening right now? What am I missing? What am I not seeing? What am I perhaps seeing, but not, I'm not yet able to do? And then it becomes more spacious, because then you realize, oh, I still have work to do. I'm not perfect. I'm not this perfect being, you know, walking around manifesting some idealized version of what I think the teachings are. I'm just an ordinary human being living my life, and sometimes I do that skillfully, and sometimes I do that very unskillfully. Okay, what is the work that I need to, to do? Maybe uh, one more. Uh, yeah, Teresa, maybe since you haven't spoken. Okay. Yeah, it was just a follow-up. to. So is maybe the Dharma practicing it is making it visible the way speaking liturgy makes the invisible visible? And so the harm that is done isn't to the Dharma itself, but to the, um, tra- not the transmission, but the causing people to understand what it is or living it and acting it. If you do something wrong, not wrong, but not right thought, then you're not communicating it accurately. Something like you're that. Not, yeah, you're not manifesting it accurately. I mean, the, you know, the Dalai Lama said, my religion is kindness. And, and if we could just do that, actually, we could get rid of, dispense with all of this. If we could actually just live from a place of real, true kindness, all of this would be extra. You know? so, so yes, making, it, making visible the invisible, manifesting the unmanifested. You know, it's, it's kind of like this... You know, you look around, there's something, right? There's not nothing. There's something. And from a Buddhist perspective, the question is, what is this thing? What is this reality? And you could, you could speak of it as filled with this potentiality. Now, we can fill it with the three virtues, um, three poisons, greed, anger, and ignorance, and the three, virgi- uh, the three uh, virtues, compassion, uh, Yes, generosity and wisdom. Thank you. And at, that at each moment, we have a choice. There are moments in our lives when, when the choice is taken from us. There are situations and there are people for whom the choice is taken away from. And that moment, I feel that that's... Shugen Sensei has spoken of this before. That's like, um, for example, when you take a human life. You're not just taking a human life you're taking away the opportunity for that person to realize themselves. That's the, the most egregious breaking of, of, of the, the, the Dharma. That's the most egregious stealing of the Dharma. And so at each moment, 
we can choose, you know, to live out of this, this, this life of virtue. And virtue also may have a connotation of kind of goodness, but it's really just being in accord, being in harmony, really being, coming from a place that is both wise, as in understanding things as they are, and compassionate, which really means knowing that when I hurt you, I'm hurting me. That when I hurt you, I hurt, I hurt them. Right? So this, this vow to save all sentient beings, it's in place because until all beings are saved, I'm not free. That's what the, the, the vow is immeasureless, is because you can't leave anyone out. It doesn't work. And our world is the perfect example of that. You know, we, we have, I've said this a number of times, we've done great advances in technology. We live healthier, somewhat, longer lives. We've gone to space. We've gone, you know, the, the tiniest molecules that exist, the farthest reaches of space. And we still don't know very well how to get along. We're still not very good at that. And so all of this, you know, all of these teachings, all of the skillful means are really pointing to that. You know, as the Buddha said, I teach the truth of suffering and I teach its alleviation. That's it. So even all, all of the rest, you know, right thought, you know, the eight awarenesses and the ten paramitas and the eightfold path and the twelvefold chain of interdependent origination and on and on and on. Really, two things. There's suffering and there's a way to put an end to it. And so if at any point you're in doubt, I'm about to take an action, I'm not sure, just ask yourself, will this alleviate suffering in this moment or will it, put it, or, or will it compound it? Will this thing that I'm, it's about to come out of my mouth, will this actually help or will it hinder? Sometimes you can't know. Sometimes it's not so cut and dry. You may not know right away. Then you come from the, the, your understanding in that moment, the, the best of your ability, your wish, your intent, your will to do, um, um, to do good instead of to do harm. And then you, Step forward, and then you see. And if that didn't work out well, then now you know, okay, next time, how can I do this in a more skillful way? Right? So this is, this is very much a, a, an, an ongoing process. There's no point at which you graduate from Zen practice. <laughs> There's no point at which you're done with it. And that's the, that's the good part, because then that means that it's not apart from your life. There's no point at which you will be able to say, okay, I did it, I did it, I've, I've seen everything there is to see, and now I can move on to better things. And so, because it is your life, why not invest in it, your time and your energy in trying to really let this be um, not just even a good life or a skillful life, but a life that is actually truly free, that is truly free from that suffering. So thank you. Thank you for your, your time and for coming here this morning. And we'll end with uh, the four bodhisattva vows. <clears throat> for more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.